Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. How would you like the job of keeping tabs on labor relations in an organization with 2 million employees or of employee accountability? My next guest isn't personally responsible for these things, but he's the main advisor at the Office of Personnel Management on them, and now he's the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Tim Curry joins me now. Tim, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with what your job actually is, because you are not the labor relations negotiator for any agency, and yet you need to know what's going on across sometimes contentious situations. Yeah, it's always a challenge to explain what my job is to folks. So I am the like the senior career advisor to the director of OPM on labor management relations policy for the executive branch and then employee accountability policy. And what I mean by that is like how we discipline employees or how we address poor performance. And you're right, I am not the manager for that. I, I'm not responsible for taking those actions out across this big government, this big enterprise of ours. But what I do is... I help the director implement the administration's policies regarding labor relations and employee accountability. Plus, I offer technical and policy assistance to agencies that need it, and I support them in any way I can. And it must be something of a challenge to go from administration to administration because it seems like the pendulum swings further and further each time over the past you know, 8, 10, 12, 20 years. And on the one hand, one administration wants to end official time for all of the, you know, labor work and get rid of the offices. Next thing you know, official time is back. The offices are back. So that sounds challenging. It can be challenging, but it keeps it interesting, too. I would just kind of highlight the point that you made by, you know, I am a career federal employee. And, of course, as career federal employees, it's our responsibility to support and help implement the policies of the administration that's in charge. So, yes, the policies will vary from administration to administration, but I think having that experience, it helps make me a better advisor to whoever that administration is. I can kind of not only give them my technical assistance, but I can offer a historical perspective and maybe point out what could happen, what might happen, uh, depending on which approach that they might want to take. Yeah, so, for example, you could say, and I'm making this up and not implying that you would have said this, but... Well, you know, if you let them have their office space, your negotiations will go faster and then you'll get closer and you'll get past the negotiation, get to the labor agreement. And so maybe give them the office, that type of thing you might be able to say. I don't know that I'd get into that kind of specifics. Certainly uh, when I'm advising agencies on stuff like that, we might talk about collective bargaining strategies. And obviously you just highlighted one key component of collective bargaining is horse trading, if you will. You make agreements to kind of achieve your objectives. But certainly when there is a big change in policy direction, then we'll look at the best way to approach that and advise not only the administration, but advise agencies on the most prudent course of action. And without being specific, has it ever happened in your career that an administration or an OPM director or someone at OMB will say, you know, Tim, you're right, we're only going to do this and maybe not all of that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm here as an advisor. I don't make the policy. So, uh, you know, I've spent my career uh, not only at OPM, but at the Department of Defense, and I did a stint over at the Patent and Trademark Office. But certainly the labor relations folks know that 
we advise management and then management makes the decision and they might accept part of our recommendations or all of our recommendations, but that just goes with the job. So you would then maybe characterize yourself as an honest broker? Yes, I would exactly uh, describe myself that way. We're speaking with Tim Curry. He's Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. And let's get to that. Again, the administrations don't spell out exactly what people have done to get the Rank Award. So how'd you get the Rank Award? Well, there's probably several areas where they focused in their recommendation for the Rank Award. It really kind of begins primarily when COVID hit. And basically, we are looking at a government-wide issue that we needed to act quickly to protect the health and safety of the workforce. So it started with like uh, the decisions to send employees to work from home. And we needed to do that quickly. But we also recognize that there are over 1,800 bargaining units across the executive branch covering over 1.2 million bargaining employees. So we knew we were going to have collective bargaining issues, but we also recognized that we needed to take a whole of government approach to deal with those collective bargaining issues. So what I did uh, with the teams that I lead, we start regularly engaging with the agencies, giving them not only our recommendations on not technical matters, but strategies. And we tried to do that together. Plus, I have a relationship with the national unions, and separately, I was engaging with them to keep them informed on where the administration was going and the approaches we were going to take. So we were trying to do that in a way to balance health and safety of the workforce, but also honoring collective bargaining obligations while not impacting agency missions in any adverse way. And of course, we're still dealing with the long, long tail of that whole situation and the changes that it engendered in the way people work. But early on in the pandemic, and you were at OPM then, correct? Correct. It must have been a lot of midnight oil figuring all of this out, how to keep the government going in a sense. Yeah, and it it was truly a team effort uh, with a lot of folks here at OPM and certainly with our partners and agencies. Everybody had a role to play. You know, I, I approached it from the federal workforce perspective in advising the administration, advising the OPM director, advising OMB, that we needed to do in a meaningful way that, again, in honor of our workforce to keep them healthy and safe, that honoring statutory collective bargaining rights, but also making sure that agencies were still able to accomplish their mission. So there was a lot of time and effort that was spent by a lot of people, including me and my team. And moving to the accountability side of it, employee accountability, which we mentioned early on, aside from labor relations, there's a lot of mythology surrounding federal employee accountability. You know, the myths, you can never fire one, or it takes 10 years to fire someone, or they just get moved somewhere. That can happen. What's your view of where accountability is in reality? I think that the process that's in place is a straightforward process that we need to make sure that our supervisors are well-trained to understand what they can and cannot do. We need to make sure that we support them when they need to address a situation on their staffs or in in their workplaces, that whether it's a conduct issue or a a poor performance issue. So it's really supporting managers, uh, making sure that the appropriate level of training is involved and so forth. It's not impossible to hold a federal employee accountable. I do believe that the vast majority of federal employees are good employees. They come in and they do their job and they do it well. 
All right. And what's next for you? You've been in the government a long time. You are senior executive. What would you like to accomplish before you call it a day and cash in on the TSP? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I still have a lot of things I'm doing here at OPM right now. We're working on a number of things. Obviously, with each administration, we have different policies that we're pursuing. You know, one of the things that was noted, like in the nomination, was my work on helping reset labor management relations. That dealt with Executive Order 14003, which rescinded policies from the last administration, and plus the work on worker empowerment. And we're still doing that. We've made a lot of progress. I think we're heading in a positive direction, but certainly there's always more work to do in a government this big. Tim Curry is Deputy Associate Director for Accountability and Workforce Relations at the Office of Personnel Management and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award this year. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.